the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. So on the show today, we've got Melton Demiris. She is Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares, a digital asset investment firm that manages uh, $4 billion in assets on behalf of a global client base. Meryn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, now, cryptocurrencies and digital assets, they're a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, can I ask where you actually started your career? Absolutely. So this is a little bit unconventional, perhaps, but I started my career in the commodities industry and then uh, moved over onto the oil and gas side, in particular, oil and gas M&A, um, and then corporate treasury in the energy super major space. So it's a little bit of an unconventional background, but interestingly, many people who understood Bitcoin early on and saw the promise of it as an asset class, um, in fact, came from the commodities space. So uh, I found many fellow commodities nerds in the Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what do you think it was specifically the relationship between those oil and gas sector investors that took them over to the crypto side of things? Yeah, I think, again, if we look at the way that the commodities um, industry has evolved, if you recall, in the early days of, of commodities, it was primarily traded um, by uh, energy producers, right? who are looking for a way to uh, balance uh, basically their uh, their their profits to, to lock in margins um, by selling forward contracts. And commodities for a long time were not really considered an investable asset class. But over the span of the last two decades, uh, commodities have become a very large asset class. I have seen the growth of massive markets, particularly on the derivative side, and um, also have seen the integration into uh, investor portfolios, right, uh, where historically you know, investors weren't really exposed to commodities. And I think we saw a similar thing with Bitcoin. That was actually, you know, the, the premise behind CoinShares, which is a deviation on iShares, if you recall, which is a, a BlackRock family of, of products. But I think, again, one of the things we saw is there was just so much market infrastructure that needed to be built. There was so much capital markets plumbing that needed to be built around this new asset class, which functions very differently from any other asset class. And again, the fundamentals of supply and demand in the crypto ecosystem mirror some of the analysis we would do typically on uh, commodities around supply and demand as well. Okay, we'll get further into cryptocurrencies and the plumbing around it uh, just very shortly. I just want to just go into one of your other roles as well. You're a founding member and co-chair of the World Economic Forum Cryptocurrency Council. Can you just let us know, what does that involve? Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful question. So I've been involved with um, the World Economic Forum for the last four years now. Um, originally, the council was called the Blockchain Council. <laughs> but since then, uh, WEF has come around and is, is now you know, engaging members of industry to help educate um, the broader WEF audience about not just blockchain technology itself as a, a platform, but also cryptocurrencies. Really, the role of the council, we have uh, 30 members from around the world from different 
different parts of the cryptocurrency ecosystem, including regulators, policymakers, entrepreneurs, people who work in traditional enterprises and at traditional financial institutions. And um, the big theme really is, and what we're attempting to do, is to create um, educational resources and to share our perspective on what's happening in our industry. So really the opportunity here is, is WEF is obviously a very large platform. Um, WEF has, has members all around the world as well as quite large reach. And so our objective really has been to produce and publish fact-based research. I think when we look at cryptocurrencies, there aren't necessarily authority uh, sort of institutions. The nature of decentralization obviously makes it challenging to have uh, authoritative institutions that will have the final word on, on all things crypto. So the, the effort here really was around creating a set of robust resources on the research side as well as the advocacy side to help policy policymakers, um, corporate executives, and other sort of influential individuals in our world understand what's happening in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, understand um, what people in this space are building, and what its potential implications might be. So it really is a fantastic channel for education and advocacy around this much misunderstood and much maligned asset class and technology. Okay, perfect. So part of this podcast is to get a better understanding of the cryptocurrency and digital assets and the the technology that sits behind it. So let's start with cryptocurrency. First of all, as simply as possible, can you explain what a cryptocurrency is? Yeah, absolutely. So a cryptocurrency is a purely digital um asset. It doesn't have a physical instantiation, which makes it, I think, very different from something like a commodity, which has a physical instantiation. But um, effectively, a, a cryptocurrency uh, relies on sort of three fundamental things. Number one, um, it's native typically to a protocol. These protocols are public and open source software, um, which anyone can build upon. Uh, there, It's a unit of account. It's a store of value and a medium of exchange native to these public protocols. And so in a way, an interesting way to conceptualize cryptocurrency is it's internet native, digitally native uh, money that enables enables us to utilize these underlying protocols to exchange value, as opposed to relying on sovereign currencies or a physical <laughs> value that's been made digital through these trusted intermediaries called banks. So why do we need cryptocurrencies? Why can't we just have fiat currencies or just the standard central bank currencies that we currently have? That's a great question. I think that's also a highly subjective question. In my view, one of the interesting challenges and um, one of the things I talk about a lot is as we move from a physical world and spending a lot of time in a physical world, spending much more time in, in digital worlds, right? Whether that is uh, spending time on the internet, spending time in games or spending time on, on Zoom, one of the things that changes in the digital world is the nature of trust changes. And I think one of the fundamental challenges of the internet has always been there is no native payment mechanism. There is no native currency of the internet. And so um, it's well and fine, you know, in the physical world, if I want to buy a coffee from you, you and I are in the same physical jurisdiction. We share the same sovereign currency. And so I can transact with you. I know who you are. I trust you. And I have a trusted intermediary that can help us facilitate that transaction. On the internet, when we exchange value, it's much more difficult to establish that trust. We often don't share the same currency system. We may not even be on the same payment network. So the emergence of these public open source protocols that enable people to share this, this one sort of currency layer, this one global settlement layer 
here is a really unique value proposition that also enables us to interact um, on the internet with other individuals um, and also with machines, by the way, without requiring trust. And I think that is a, a very new concept that's uh, very much unique to the digital world. And it also, um, what I think is really interesting, enables us to start to price um, and put value on things that we historically haven't been able to price or put value on, including things like reputation, trust, our identity, our credibility, et cetera. So it's really ushering in this new digital economy um, using this new medium of exchange, this unit of account that doesn't rely on us being in the same physical jurisdiction or utilizing the same underlying financial infrastructure. Okay, you mentioned trust there. If you're dealing with with someone who, that has no face and you're not entirely sure of the digital currency you're using, where does the trust come from? How do you know that the cryptocurrency you're using is legitimate and where it's ending up is legitimate as well? I mean, the trust comes from um, the protocol itself, and protocols are, are code. Uh, it's open source, source code, so anyone can review and read the code. And if we talk about Bitcoin specifically, which largely my focus area, um, Bitcoin in, in particular, right, um, it's based on on math, on <laughs> encryption and uh, cryptography. And so I think, again, um, one of the interesting trends is do we trust institutions? Institutional trust in our world, I think, is at an all-time low, especially following the events that have unfolded over the last two years, which have been highly disruptive to people, particularly in their physical lives. And so much of what we do has shifted to the digital world. And I do think we're seeing a crisis of institutional credibility. The trust comes from the protocol, the system itself. So instead of having to depend on an institution, a policymaker, which, you know, policymakers change their minds, they change when regimes change or when power structures change, these protocols uh, don't change as much over time. And again, it's the communities who are using these protocols largely who dictate the changes that, that get made and they're applied on a, a global basis um, through the consensus mechanism that is used by that specific protocol, which again, it's, it's code. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. We do get cryptocurrencies like uh, Flockyuno, named after Elon Musk's dog. Uh, there are plenty of skeptics out there, and we get huge swings in the likes of Bitcoin. I mean, we've seen it over the last couple of months, especially in and around the conflict uh, with Ukraine and Russia. Um, mm -hmm. How would you counteract that, and how seriously should we take the crypto craze? Uh, okay, so look, the first thing I'll say is um, there's a really fantastic book by a researcher named Carlotta Perez. She's a researcher at MIT, my alma mater, um, and it's called financial, uh, Technological Revolutions and Financial Bubbles. I think anytime there's a new technology that emerges, we tend to see bubbles, right? Um, the paper value or sort of the perceived value of this new technology innovation often exceeds the actual uh, utility value of it. Investors uh, like myself and, and others speculators in particular help fuel that. And we do see these cyclical trends around new investment themes. And it takes quite some time uh, for that cyclicality to sort of get smoothed out and for the secular trend to become apparent. I think a similar thing has happened in cryptocurrencies. And again, anytime there's sort of a new technology sector or new technology trend, we see a high amount of, of grift, <laughs> if you will. Um, I think what these dog coins like Floki, which you mentioned, as well as Doge and Shiba Inu, and who knows, there's so many of them. Um, I wouldn't characterize them the same way I would characterize Bitcoin. I think those are, you know, attempts at, at 
grift and are probably, you know, capturing some of the internet meme culture uh, that we also see in stocks, by the way, with stocks like GameStop and AMC and, and others uh, who've seen quite an interesting sort of pattern over the last two years as, as people spend more time online and use investing kind of as a form of entertainment, which is quite interesting. I think, again, um, anytime there's new technology, whether it's, you know, self-driving cars, we've seen a lot of companies in the public sector who have engaged in a high amount of, of grift around that that sector. Um, it happened with cannabis stocks as well. I think anytime there's a new sort of theme or trend, there are going to be individuals who attempt to capitalize on that for their own gain. And again, I don't think that negates um, the potential or the positive uh, impact of, of cryptocurrency as a whole. It is a fairly small percentage of the sector overall. And I think, again, we can't characterize an entire asset class by <laughs> selectively picking and choosing some examples that may be a bit more egregious in terms of providing quite low utility, but a high level of grift. Okay, so, so just like you say, there are some bad eggs in any type of industry. Um, El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender last September. Um, has that, how, how helpful has that been as a proof case for crypto? Yeah, I, I think the El Salvador case is quite an interesting one. And I think um, in some ways it's highlighted, and this is probably going to sound a bit controversial, but one of the interesting things is our, our world historically and power in our world over the last um, you know, several centuries has been predicated by capital, right? Money is effectively power. It's a proxy for, for power, along with other forms of, of power, whether that's military might or now cultural power, right? America has historically exported its culture to the rest of the world, as well as Western Europe, right? We've been exporters of, of culture. Um, what, what we're seeing in the El Salvador case that I think is really interesting is the primary tool of maintaining power in our world since World War II has been financial violence in the form of sanctions and other forms of, of fiscal and monetary policy. Um, and so I think what El Salvador is sort of experimenting with and playing with is uh, quite interesting and it challenges the nature of power in our world because it's no longer just nation states who are playing for power. It's now also online communities and decentralized open source software projects. And that's quite an interesting paradigm shift. Um, there are positives and, and negatives to that. Certainly, you know, I have my personal views on, on El Salvador. It's an it's an experiment. It's an interesting one. Um, El Salvador is currently in the process of raising sovereign debt in the form of a Bitcoin-backed bond. And they're going to mine that Bitcoin using geothermal power uh, from one of the volcanoes in, in El Salvador. So I think it will be an interesting experiment. Um, I believe they're doing $1 billion bond issuance. Um, it'll be interesting to see what types of institutions subscribe to that bond offering. Um, and, you know, again, I think the IMF and the World Bank and other financial institutions have sort of come out and expressed their concern over this because, again, this is fundamentally uh, threatening to the power those institutions have historically had. So I do think it's, it's quite an interesting experiment that highlights, I think, the disruptive nature of our migration from the physical world into the digital world and this new digital money um, that hasn't existed before that is not governed by a nation state um, and that has sort of this mathematical, hard-coded um, set of properties that cannot be influenced by nation states, corporations, or uh, individuals. And we're seeing a little bit of this play out right now in the Ukraine-Russia situation with Russians trying to get around the sanctions, the crushing sanctions imposed by the West by using Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies to get around the sanctions. I mean, how do you view that from an ethical point of view? 
But David, I want to push back on that. Um, Russian oligarchs are not using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. They've historically used, like sanctioned countries, sanctioned individuals have used the banking sector to do that. They don't need to use cryptocurrency to do that. Um, and I think one of the interesting challenges here is, and again, I think this is a popular misconception that's further exacerbated by the press as well as uh, governments around the world who perpetuate this narrative. It's actually quite false. If we look at public blockchains, one of the interesting things is they have a high degree of transparency. Anyone can view the ledger, and there are a number of firms who specialize in sort of attaching real-world metadata to transactions on, on the ledger. And we have to remember that Bitcoin is not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, right? Your pseudonym is your wallet address, but we can attach identifying information to wallet addresses. And there are wallet addresses that have been sanctioned and put on OFAC lists and sanctions lists. Um, again, the issue is, like, if I'm an oligarch and I want to evade capital controls, I, I need cash. Um, the ability to move Bitcoin into cash is still very constrained by access to the traditional banking system. And so again, I think there's this popular misconception that there's like a massive amount of, of financial crime happening through crypto. It's actually quite small. And the use of cryptocurrency for financial crime is, is actually terrible. The largest uh, seizure of assets that's ever happened, uh, $4 billion, uh, was a, a seizure of, of crypto assets that were stolen from a crypto exchange. Um, and so the traceability and the trackability of the Bitcoin blockchain and other public blockchain protocols, pardon, actually make them a really poor tool for um, financial crime and illicit financial activity. Okay, so there was a CNBC poll recently that said nearly half of millennial millionaires hold 25% of their wealth in cryptocurrencies, yet institutions, certainly old institutions, appear far less enthusiastic uh, to invest in crypto, despite the evidence of broader demand. So what do you think is the biggest blocker for institutions and the so-called serious investors in terms of investing in crypto? I would say right now, um, the challenges are, are just, I think, uh, not just around asset level risk, potential reputational risk. Um, there's also a fundamental challenge. Crypto market infrastructure is fundamentally different from traditional market infrastructure. So crypto market structure has evolved largely outside of the existing financial system. And the challenges, you know, if I as a firm, you know, am managing billions or trillions of dollars of client assets, um, it's not easy for me to utilize entirely new infrastructure that hasn't been integrated into my operating procedures, into my backend technology systems, that I don't really have a strategy for custodying and managing securely. Like engaging in crypto for an institution requires not only going through the investment committee and approving the allocation from an asset allocation perspective, but it also requires integrating a whole new type of market structure, a whole new type of technology that you've never interacted with before. So I think one of the biggest challenges is that crypto markets and traditional capital markets are very much disconnected. And um, it takes time for institutions to get comfortable operating in this new new world with this new technology that is very different from the banking system, <laughs> which, you know, we're relying there on plumbing and, and back-end infrastructure that was created, you know, probably five, six decades ago, largely dependent on COBOL systems that haven't been upgraded so much. Um, operating on this global settlement medium that is pub public blockchain requires a great amount of not only interoperational change and organizational change takes a really long time. It's really challenging. Okay, so sticking with organizations, I mean, we've heard about a lot of companies either starting to consider accepting cryptocurrency exchange for goods or perhaps even paying employees in cryptocurrencies. But what are the realistic use cases for cryptocurrencies in organizations? That's that's a great question. Look, um, 
I'm very pragmatic <laughs> in this view. I think at the end of the day, um, the core use today, and I think what many institutions are exploring, is this is a new market. Um, it's a market where uh, margins are very high, and um, again, there's there's a lot of wealth being created. Um, institutions, companies, they're in the business of making money, right, of delivering shareholder value. Um, and so if there's a new industry that emerges where there is an opportunity to create re new revenue streams, uh, these institutions have an obligation, a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders and um, their, their investors to explore that. And so I think really the primary driver for adoption in the current state of crypto is going to be the ability to create new business lines, new revenue streams that are very much impactful on the top line and bottom line. And so a lot of the impetus we're seeing now, right, Wall Street's been dabbling with, with crypto and blockchains, quote unquote, uh, for quite some time. And I think the primary push will be, look, this is a new industry. It's a new asset class. It's a new technology. There is an opportunity here to build new revenue streams. And so as that opportunity grows, um, institutions are going to participate in it. What's also interesting, when we use the term institutional, it's sort of important to delineate. I think historically, when we say institutional, we mean existing financial institutions, but there are crypto institutions being built that command tremendous amounts of capital. If we look at the deposits held by Coinbase, a publicly listed US cryptocurrency exchange and platform, um, if we look at just uh, assets under custody, Coinbase would be the sixth largest financial institution in the United States, which is quite a shocking number. So it's not just traditional institutions, there are also crypto native institutions being built um, that I think will soon rival uh, the, the uh, AUC, the AUM um, and, and power of existing institutions as well. And we talked talked about the fluctuations in the prices and volumes of crypto. I mean, organizations would struggle with that, wouldn't they? I mean, how would you anticipate businesses live with the volatility in crypto, certainly in the short term? I think historically, uh, prior to uh, March of 2020, <laughs> volatility was a, a big point of conversation when it came to cryptocurrencies. But if we look at the nature of just volatility in markets generally over the last two years, I think all parts of our um, asset use universe of the investing ecosystem have become much more volatile. So I think the volatility of crypto, which historically has sort of been uh, unusual, is no longer so unusual. If you look at volatility in equities, in <laughs> yields, at treasuries, even, you know, it's, it's been quite remarkable. I think volatility across the board as a result of chaos around the world has increased dramatically in other asset classes. So the volatility argument, I think, is no longer one that is as uh, concerning or as pressing for investors, because the rest of the world has just become more chaotic. I also think over time, as uh, cryptocurrencies continue to mature, volatility is, is going to continue to, to decrease as well. And I think, in fact, uh, Bitcoin's volatility and the volatility of some of these cryptocurrencies is actually the opportunity itself. It is an asymmetrical risk-reward opportunity. And um, we've seen that certainly play out over the last decade of Bitcoin and even in the last two years, if we look at the price performance. In fairness, though, most developed stock markets don't drop 50% from day to day, whereas cryptocurrencies do te generally tend to do that. I'm, I'm just wondering how like pension funds will be able to get attracted to cryptocurrencies when they're swinging around all over the place and they need to guarantee investors their returns. 
I don't know. They they hold Facebook stock as well, and I would say that's been fairly volatile over the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair enough. But that's one share out of out of quite quite a few million. I would say the entire tech equity sector, right? If we look at the performance of tech equities in particular, um, in newly listed tech equities, but also established tech equities, they've been quite volatile over the last six to eight months. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters dot com, or visit our website shorters dot com forward slash investor download. There's been plenty of talk about regulation, and obviously you've got your seat on the World Economic Forum about the Cryptocurrency Council. So, what do you expect regulation might look like in the future, and what impacts might it have? Again. It sort of relates to things that are going on currently with the Russia-Ukraine situation. There's been talk among European leaders to try and crack down uh, on regulation around cryptocurrency. So what do you think it might look like? Yeah, so so look, I think it's really important to make a distinction here. Uh, cryptocurrencies themselves, right, they're assets that are native to open source protocols similar to the internet, right? The internet operates on a set of open source protocols um, like HTTP. HTTP, um, FTP, file transfer protocol, email protocols, et cetera. Um, protocols themselves cannot be regulated and they don't have a specific jurisdiction. Typically financial regulation is applied on the basis of jurisdiction, right? It's where you're physically located, where your customers are domiciled that dictate what set of regulations you're subject to. The challenge of regulating a, a protocol or code is code doesn't have a jurisdiction. There's no one entity that is responsible for producing open source code. And these are some of the challenges in fact that many governments had in the early days of the internet in attempting to define policy that would dictate how the internet uh, sort of fit into their, their policy frameworks. Now, the difference here is companies themselves that are operating in the cryptocurrency space, companies that are facilitating access to these protocols, they do have physical jurisdictions. They have employees, they pay taxes in specific jurisdictions, um, and they are subject to the same rules and regulations as all other companies based on A, the nature of their business and B, the jurisdictions in which they do that business. So I do think there is this common misperception out there that cryptocurrencies on cryptocurrency pardon is unregulated. It is it is not. Cryptocurrency is heavily regulated in the same way that other sectors of the financial industry are um, in nations around the world. And I think again, um, you know, cryptocurrencies as their utilization continues to grow, it will challenge policymakers. The digital world as a whole is challenging policymakers not just when it comes to the financial elements and the sort of um, financialization of, of the digital world, but also when it comes to cybersecurity and other types of infrastructure risk that, that are potentially present. So I think, again, this is a challenge that's not unique to cryptocurrency. It's a challenge that's really specific to the growing digitization of our world, the growing disintermediation and sort of decentralization of, of different products and services in our world. And so, again, um, not unique to just cryptocurrencies, but certainly a attempting to regulate something that has no physical jurisdiction that's purely digital in nature is challenging, but certainly a reality that policymakers have to adjust to. Those that have been proactive in putting into place frameworks and clear guidance and regulations specific to cryptocurrencies, those nation states, those regions have become hubs of activity, see a lot of economic activity, a lot of companies being domiciled there. And uh, some of the jurisdictions that have lagged behind, perhaps like the UK and the US in particular, um, have seen cryptocurrency companies moving out of those jurisdictions because it's very challenging to operate in that environment. Okay, so one of the ways that policymakers are trying to 
perhaps counteracts the rise of the cryptocurrency is coming up with their own form of digital currency. Certainly, it seems like every central bank in the world is working on that. How might that affect the current cryptocurrency world? Uh, not at all. Uh, CBDC is just a digital representation of sovereign currency. It's not analogous at all to, to public blockchains. At the end of the day, the I think the impetus for CBDCs is... Um, you know, the ability to exert control over the financial system, over digital money <laughs> through this money where you can turn access on and off at the click of a button. That's certainly much easier than attempting to regulate companies and endpoints where people are accessing money and, and um, financial sort of resources. So I think, again, there are two fundamentally different propositions. I think people conflate the two, but in fact, they're entirely different in nature and the problems they're attempting to solve are entirely different. What will it take cryptocurrencies to be adopted as a standard form of payment in the future? I think utilizing cryptocurrencies uh, for payment, um, there are very specific use cases in which it's um, enabling and unlocking new use cases, particularly in instances, you know, when you're interacting online, um, you and I, if you have PayPal and I have Venmo, we can't transact. If we live in different nation states with different sovereign currencies, right, we're exposed to FX risk. One of us is going to have to convert into the other person's sovereign currency and complete the transaction that way or rely on an intermediary who will do that for us. And what cryptocurrency does and what I think is so cool about it is for the first time we can have a common currency. And in fact, if we look at the way that Ukraine has been able to use cryptocurrency to raise funds by accepting Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they've been able to raise funds from thousands of people around the world who all live in different countries, who all have different based sovereign currencies that they're operating in that can donate um, in this, this one internet native currency. So I do think it presents and unlocks a lot of new opportunities around online commerce and digital interactions. Um, historically, one of the challenges in, in transacting on the internet is we're still dependent on sovereign money, right? Which is not digital in nature, it's not global in nature. So I think um, there are a lot of really exciting use cases around um, adding value into the internet that are quite exciting, whether that's paying for content in new ways, whether that's, you know, changing the nature of work where people no longer work for companies, but they work for online projects and can get paid in, in crypto. Um, and there, we already see a lot of uh, use cases of, of that. So I do think it's bringing sort of a new feature set and a new sort of um, set of capabilities to the digital economy. And I think we're in the early stages of exploring those implications, but certainly so far the results of that have been quite profound and very interesting, very unexpected. <laughs> so, okay, so, so right at the start, we talk about the infrastructure uh, around cryptocurrencies. I've heard lots of people argue the accounting ledger behind crypto is where the real value is in cryptocurrencies. I mean, do you agree with that or and how, how might it be used in the future? Uh, I don't agree with that. I mean, that's like saying the value of the internet is like a specific protocol. It's not the value of the internet is all of those protocols put together and um, what they, they enable us to do. I think, again, there is this popular misconception, like a blockchain at its core, it's a way of organizing information around who owns what, right? It's a way of organizing information around value, which historically we've done using centralized databases. And the nature of um, dematerializing or representing sort of physical information or ownership data in a database is when you move data between databases, there's no way for you to confirm, right, with, um, with fidelity or veracity that 
that um, the data has been copied properly to, from one ledger to another and deleted in, in the other ledger, right? We spend a tremendous amount of time and energy on this process called reconciliation, which is what happens after settlement, to ensure that that copying and pasting of data has, has been done properly. It's quite a mess. Um, and so I think one of the, the interesting sort of thought processes here is um, this new data architecture and the elimination of this double spend problem or the resolution of this copying and pasting of data um, without needing a trusted intermediary is really profound. Um, but the actual innovation is the ability to transfer value in a secure manner on the internet, full stop. And I think, again, um, it doesn't make sense to have a blockchain without its own native currency. That's sort of a bad use of computation and energy, uh, you can just use a database for that. So I think this idea that we need to use a blockchain for anything and everything, that's a panacea for like all of these uh, challenges we have is we evolve um, into more digital society, more interconnected uh, society as sort of a, a misnomer. The real value is in these financial primitives that we're able to build uh, as a result of that data architecture. Does the crypto industry need to clean up their act in terms of uh, sustainability uh, and how can the industry clean up uh, the mining of cryptocurrencies? Yeah, again, this is an area where I think there is a lot of misinformation. Um, when we look at the conversation around sources and uses of energy, um, there is no energy police yet, although <laughs> certainly some Jurisdictions are moving that way, which is quite interesting and obviously has not worked out well for them. Um, really, the conversation we need to be having is around sources of energy. Um, at the end of the day, the Bitcoin industry on a global basis today, and we've published research on this, um, our, all of our data is, is included in that research. It can be reviewed by anyone. 57% um, of Bitcoin mining is done with renewable energy today. The primary inputs into Bitcoin mining, you have CapEx in the form of investment in semiconductors, and you have OpEx, which is your energy cost, right? That's your primary sort of raw material input. Your objective as a Bitcoin miner, someone who participates in securing the Bitcoin network and validating transactions, is to have as low of a CapEx and OpEx as possible. So how do you lower your OpEx? Well, you utilize um, unused renewables or you utilize um, energy that doesn't have natural demand. And so uh, what we saw before uh, China you know, shut down many of the large industrial Bitcoin mines, was the majority of Bitcoin mining in the world was done in Shenzhen, China, um, during the rainy season, where there was an abundance of hydroelectric power that Bitcoin miners could use at low to no cost. Um, now what we've seen is migration to other energy rich regions, where there is a lot of supply of energy, but no natural offtake. And again, what we're doing is Bitcoin's kind of a, a money battery in a Way, um, where you can take energy that's not being utilized for other productive purposes and turn it into monetary energy, monetary value that can be utilized and sort of stored uh, through space and time. So I think there is sort of this interesting misnomer. Um, if we look just at the United States, if you look just at North America, Right. Um, Bitcoin mining in North America is done with 40% renewables based on the latest report from the North American Bitcoin Mining Council, which pulls in data from publicly listed mining companies. Uh, the mix of energy on the U.S. energy grid today is only 19% renewables. So what I think is interesting is as an industry as a whole, um, Bitcoin cryptocurrencies are much greener than other industries. I think, again, one of the challenges here is Bitcoin is much more transparent around its energy usage than any other industry. And if we look at the overall scale uh, today, According to estimates, 300 million people around the world use and hold Bitcoin. Um, 300 million people, you know, consuming that energy to have access to 
transactions to secure financial computation, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think is not so, so large. Um, the other thing I'll say is we've seen a really interesting trend as well of actually uh, cryptocurrency miners and people who participate in consensus in these different protocols actually helping put renewables on the map without a single dollar of government subsidies. So I think cryptocurrency is actually a very interesting tool that could potentially be used to help facilitate the multiple trillions of dollars of investments in renewables, nuclear, and other forms of energy production innovation that we need to see without relying on more taxation, which, you know, we're, we're all concerned about taxes, um, and relying on public sector uh, sort of incentives. And so that's just a really interesting way, I think, to reframe the conversation around sources of energy and look at ways that we can utilize private sector incentives or economically viable incentives to help fuel a renewable energy transition. Okay, so we've spoken mainly about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in this conversation, but just one final question. I mean, there's lots more digital assets that are becoming available. We're seeing NFTs, non-fungible tokens, things like sports clips, which sell for large amounts of money. Nike's trying to register patents for digital versions of its trainers. And we've had digital art sell for $17 million. That was in 2021. As investors in digital assets yourselves, which areas are you looking at that might be a bubble? Which ones do you think are more stable and which areas are more speculative? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, everything is a bubble until it isn't. And again, these cycles of innovation, um, you know, typically we see um, financial value or sort of speculative value often decoupling from real production value and over time those recouple um, again. So I think, look, um, the areas that I'm really excited about are capital markets infrastructure. I think the ability to have a global settlement layer um, that is, you know, public blockchain is incredibly powerful and will have fundamental implications for global market structure. And I think uh, we're already seeing that uh, crypto is a very large market. We're trading, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a day on this global public blockchain infrastructure and uh, executing, clearing and settling all on, on chain on this, this public ledger, which is incredibly profound in terms of upgrading and reconceptualizing what global markets might, might look like across a variety of asset classes. So capital markets infrastructure is certainly very exciting. I think also just thinking about distributed computation and how we price uh, computation and connectivity and, and storage more broadly. It's very exciting because for the first time we have digitally native money that we can utilize to price resources on uh, computational networks, right? Um, Bitcoin transaction fees are effectively a way of pricing demand for computation on the Bitcoin network. Similarly, gas fees on the Ethereum network are a way of pricing the demand for block space on the Ethereum network and so on and so forth with, with these different protocols. So very excited about sort of the implications for computation and the creation of new digital commodities that enable us to price different types of computation um, that we want to have the ability to, to access. And then I think the last area I'm personally very excited about is um, the exploration of new types of value. So when we look at NFTs, right, NFTs, I think, are really uh, interesting because they are uh, monetizing or sort of financializing cultural value, <laughs> which is quite interesting. And a lot of NFTs are based on Internet memes or other sort of forms of pop culture or, or popular culture. And um, they are also creating these interesting new communities whereby owning a specific NFT, you're making a statement about who you are and what community or tribe you, you belong to, um, which is historically something we've maybe done with uh, religion um, or our, our nation state where, where we're a citizen of, um, our affinity to specific 
like sports clubs or, or sports teams, right? And so I think as we move more into the digital world and sport, spend more of our time um, online, what is the equivalent of expressing affinity for a specific group or a specific philosophy or specific cause on the internet? Well, it's it's NFTs. And so um, I do think there is a lot of uh, potential in this idea of what we're calling Web3, which is basically new models for um, associating and collaborating and uh, you know creating value on online in this this digital world, and so um, that's an area we're very excited about. It's certainly very nascent, and I think again, as a result of it being so nascent, um, there are going to be natural bubbles that form. I think it's also very sort of cyclical in nature, where there are themes and trends that sort of emerge every six to twelve months. Those get highly capitalized, and we sort of see a cool off because expectations maybe were overinflated. It takes a long time to actually produce some of these things, but then after several years, that theme reemerges and sort of it's it's more mature, more fully baked form. Um, and so those, I would say, are the three sectors I'm really excited about. The sectors I'm more skeptical of, um, I think a lot of the activity around sort of gaming in the metaverse is um, not necessarily an area. I certainly think it's compelling. I don't think it uniquely needs a cryptocurrency. And I think a lot of the current iterations are very, very early. So I think that will certainly take some time to, to mature and develop. But I think the majority of the opportunities I invest in look at are really around, you know, not choosing necessarily specific assets or specific representations of value in which to invest and taking a directional perspective there, but really expressing the thematic through investing in core infrastructure that's going to power all of this sort of digital financial activity. Well, that was a show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroder's Podcast at Schroder's.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. <laughs>